Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and the Lord will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Father, we just acknowledged in song to you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Thank you that at an incredible price through the cross of your Son, that your mercy and love and grace met one another through a substitute who bore our wrath. Lord Jesus, we have nothing but praise for you, for by nature we are objects of wrath, but you have made us objects of mercy and of grace. When you save us, you have saved us, your word says, to change us, to conform us into your image. And so, our Father, we ask that the word which you said has sanctifying power, your son prayed to you in that high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. And so we, like the psalmist, tremble at the word. We come and ask that you would help us to pay close attention to remove all the distractions, that we would focus on your word, that we would listen earnestly For in your word is life. You said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So help me, Father, in this hour, come and fill me. Anoint me with your power that I might rightly divide the word of truth. Help those who have never met Christ, who have never found forgiveness, may today be a turning point. And for those who have crossed that line, help us together to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. If you are here for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we finished not long ago a verse-by-verse exposition of the epistle of James. And we typically go from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book. And Lord willing, before the fall ends, we'll begin a line-by-line exposition of an Old Testament book. But I am here this morning to address some issues that God has burdened me with in these past weeks. We just finished a six-week study on morality and what God has to say about it. And this morning, I want to address the subject of evangelism. Now, some of you have told me when you came to this church that you were burned in the church that you came from. And yet, when you come to a passage like Acts chapter 4, you say, wow, This church was godly. This church was exciting. The presence of the Lord was obvious. He was at work. Well, Jesus promised, I will build my church, and he promised that the powers of death and hell could not prevail against it. And so if God is building his church, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of what he does. I don't want to be a part of some dead church that's filled with internal strife and fighting. I want to be a part of a New Testament Bible-believing church that God is using and working and moving through. I want to be a part of a healthy church. There are many aspects of a healthy church, but certainly there is one dimension that is highlighted here in the fourth chapter. These are people who were passionate about sharing the gospel. So for the next few weeks, we'll be speaking of this today, courageously witnessing for Christ, next time, consistently witnessing for Christ. And so what we find in Acts 4 is a snapshot of the church sharing their faith and in the process meeting opposition. Now, God knows my heart. It has never been my goal to take good people out of Bible-believing, 
Christ-centered churches where the pastor knows and loves Christ and to bring them here. I want to win first and foremost the loss to Christ. And by God's grace, most of the people who join, the majority is always by conversion. I want to help people, good people, save people who are in bad churches to get out. If they're in a church where the pastor does not believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, they need to get out and be with the people of God. And I certainly want to help new people into the community to find a good, healthy, Bible-believing church, and we're one of many. And so this morning, I want us to be prepared in this process of bringing people into the kingdom. But I want to say that if you do it, you're going to meet hostility more and more in the day that we live in. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3.19. He said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Men love the darkness. The word love, agapao, it's the same word that's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It refers to a willful choosing kind of love. Just as God chose to give His Son and the Lord Jesus chose to leave heaven to take on our humanity. And the Spirit of God was involved in that process as He overshadowed Mary's womb and took the eternal deity of Christ and brought together with it perfect sinless humanity. As they chose to do that, some people choose willfully to love sin rather than to love God. And of course, as we approach the end of the age, God promises that the world will not get better, it will get worse. Listen to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, because lawlessness is increased. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. You could say, because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. So with the love of sin, we need to be prepared for more and more opposition. And I could read pages of opposition that is now coming upon evangelical Bible-believing Christians, not the liberal mainline denominations that no longer believe Scripture, but those who adhere to the Word of God. There is a growing opposition, and the government says, yes, we want you to have freedom of religion, and by that they mean within the four walls of your church. And so this morning, I want to speak on the subject of being a courageous witness for Christ, a bold witness for Christ. Look, the only way to change a nation is to change the individuals within that nation. You change them one person at a time. Now, whether God will bring a revival, only He knows. Because we are told in Scripture there will come a point in God's plan for the ages when there will be no revival. Sin will only increase. In fact, there is one promised future revival, and it's after the church is removed, and it's during the Great Tribulation period, where an untold number of people who had never heard the gospel before in clarity and power will be converted. John describes in in the Revelation, the seventh chapter. But as we approach the end of the age, there is going to be more and more hostility. Why? Because sin will grow, and men will love sin, and they will hate those who stand for truth. So this morning, I want to begin by reading our passage. I'm not going to read the entire text, but I want to begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, follow along. In fact, I will read the entire text. Acts 4, verse 1. I hope you brought a Bible. By the way, how many of you have a Bible? Hold it up so I can see it. Fantastic. I see a few people holding their phones. I'm assuming you've got the Bible on it, right? Okay. 
turn it off, put it on airplane mode, do something, unless you're a doctor and you're going to be called out. Acts 4, beginning in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are in trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I was thinking this week about our oldest son when he was five years old, and he had an eight-hour-long operation for a tumor that was in his leg. And as Audrey and I sat in the waiting room, every few hours a nurse would come out and bring us an update on how this surgery was going. And then finally... The doctor came out and said the operation was a complete success. Well, we immediately got on the payphone. Some of you don't know what a payphone is. Maybe I should have put a picture up here. Uh, we got on the payphone and, and we called some people who are waiting, who are praying. We wanted them to know our good news because you see, good news is for sharing. Well, I'm going to tell you, we've got the best news this world will ever hear. And we don't need to be silent about it. We need to share it. It's our responsibility, and it is our privilege. And we're blessed to be able to pass on the good news that people can be forgiven and released from the burden of sin, be freed, have a new birth from above, and to come into a personal relationship with the living God. Well, if that's the case... Why is it that so many Christians live in fear and they are reluctant to share the gospel? And how is it that Peter and John were so courageous on this occasion? Now, sometimes when we think about the apostles, we think, well, they're different from us. You know, these are the guys that had a halo around their head. Now, they didn't have any halos. They were cut out of the same piece of cloth that you and I were cut out of. They had the same frailties and challenges that we have. Yet they stood boldly for Jesus Christ. And so today I want to investigate the origins of their courage that we can share in it today. If you are new, there in the bulletin, there's a note-taking outline. If you are online, there's a place for you to be able to print out that outline. And I want to give you four reasons why these brothers had such great confidence and courage. And you might want to jot them down and make them prayer requests this week. Maybe take the four points and each day pray for a different aspect. The first principle as to why they were courageous and how you can be courageous is you must be prepared for persecution. You must be prepared 
for persecution. These early believers were persecuted, and if you are obedient for Christ, you will as well. And if you're not prepared, instead of speaking up, you will fold up. We need to be prepared for opposition. Now, we never want to give the impression that the abundant life that Jesus brings is all thorns and no roses, but neither do we want to falsely portray the Christian life that it's all roses and no thorns. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And of course, when you read the end of chapter 2, turn back a page, look at the last verse of chapter 2, notice what these early believers were known for. They were known for praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here, initially, there's a very positive response to the gospel. God was adding to their number day by day. But it's not always that way. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in writing 2 Corinthians? He gives us some very picturesque imagery to describe how people will respond when they hear the gospel. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, to those who are being saved, an aroma from death to death, to the other, excuse me, to those who are lost, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. In other words, to those who are being saved, we're just a sweet savor, the message we preach. But to those who have opposition in their heart towards the truth, we smell to them, we stink to them, we are a stench. The message that you bring, and listen, it's more than just living it, it's speaking it. And some of us have never experienced the least amount of opposition Because when it comes to standing for truth, to say that homosexuality and transgenderism and drunkenness and using pot and drinking alcohol and all these other things are are wicked and displeasing to God, oh, you don't bother anyone. And some of us have never even attempted to share the plan of salvation. We leave it for the paid professional. But listen. If you will speak up for Christ, if you will live for Christ, you are going to see opposition. And that's what we are reminded of. Look at the first two verses as the setting is given to us. Uh, It's an example and a reminder that religion does not like to be threatened because religion has certain parameters, certain walls that they live within. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you've come out of a dead church, you don't need much explanation for what is happening in verses 1 and 2. You know firsthand that in a quasi-religious group of people, when you are born again, some of you were shared the gospel With someone who knew the Lord, you went back to your church where you never heard the gospel and you were excited to tell other people and all of a sudden you hit a brick wall and there's opposition. And instead of bringing good news and comfort, you bring great discomfort. That's what's happening here. Notice verse 1, there's a number of people who are present. First, we're told there were priests. 
Priests, of course, were involved in the temple area doing sacrificial kind of work. But remember, at this point in the church, the curtain has been torn from top to bottom. The sacrificial system is over because all that it pictured was fulfilled in Jesus. So they're just going through these externals. And some of us came from churches like that that were ritualistic and symbolic with all the bells and smells, but no reality. Second, in addition to the priests, we learn that there was the captain of the temple guard. He was present. He's kind of the chief of police for the temple priests. Now remember, a huge stir had erupted. And these men were to keep order, especially in light of the fact that Rome didn't like it if there was disorder. And neither did they like it if their order was being violated. A man who had been paralyzed for 40 years from his mother's womb was miraculously healed. Look back at Acts 3 and verse 6. Notice Peter said to this man sitting at the gate who was paralyzed, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazarene walk. Look at verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, that quiet little church meeting got very, very loud. And Peter, of course, recognized that the purpose of miracles was to confirm the messenger, and he saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus didn't heal everyone. He healed a select few, one, to do the miracles that only the Messiah would do, to authenticate that he was indeed the promised one, the prophet that Moses wrote of, the promised Savior of the world, and he would use those miracles to preach the gospel. That's what his disciples are doing. Verse 4 indicates that the total number of males, it doesn't say people in your Bible, it says males, and by design, because it's the Greek word for a male in deference to a woman. 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. So the people are filled with joy, they're happy, they're praising the Lord, and the place is shaken up. And so the captain of the uh, temple priests is uh, in charge to keep order, and he steps in, as we'll see. In addition, there's a third group. There's the Sadducees. Now, most of you know the distinction between a Pharisee, a separated one, who are more conservative in their doctrine, but still off in so many realms. And then there were the liberals, the Sadducees, who were Sadducee because, among other things, they didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. They were very wealthy men. They were part of the aristocratic uh, class. They were the theological liberals when Luke will later describe them in Acts 23 and in verse 8. He will say, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And of course, Jesus told us that the Sadducees neither understood the Scriptures nor the power of God. And Luke says they deny here the existence of good angels, they deny demon spirits, and the doctrine of the resurrection. And of course, they have a major problem on their hands. Because here's a man who has been supernaturally healed, and he's been healed in the name of the resurrected Lord. And so they're upset. By the way, remember, this is the same religious group of people 
The council, the Sanhedrin, was principally made up of Sadducees. It had some Pharisees, Paul being one of them, if you remember, from his testimony to the church at Philippi. But this was the same council that Jesus stood before a few months earlier, where they condemned him on the night in which he was betrayed. And of course, they hated the supernatural. That's something they couldn't control. And do you remember when Lazarus was supernaturally raised from the dead, having been dead for four days? It was from that day forward that the council, that the religious hoi polloi sought to kill the Lord Jesus. Now, zooming in on verse 2, the Bible says these three groups, notice, were greatly disturbed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was central to the preaching of the gospel. You can preach the cross, and if you don't preach the resurrection, you are preaching a message that is not complete. You must believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead in order to be saved, and it's his resurrection that is God's receipts, that, is in, that he is indeed Lord. And so this man who's supernaturally healed in the name of the resurrected Lord shook them all up, verse 3. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So the captain of the guard has them put in jail until the next day when the council meets. So the captain, the priests, the Sadducees, they're threatened because their little orderly religion is threatened. And that's often what will happen. Notice verse 4, we're told, but many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men, again, Arnair, men in deference to women, came to be about 5,000. There were so many people saved. They went from 3,000 men on the day of Pentecost now to 5,000 men, excluding women and children. So there's somewhere between 20 and 25,000. Some put it as high as 30,000 in this church here in Jerusalem. Now, don't miss the picture that Luke has described. Jerusalem is brimming with this news that a man who was lame from his mother's womb was now walking. It's a miracle. And thousands of people are coming to meet the risen Savior in a very personal, life-changing way. And in spite of the opposition, the gospel continues to go out. And so there's just an excitement. I think of Jeremiah when I read a text like this. In Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, the prophet said, Like a burning fire shut up in my bones. He said, And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. When the apostle Paul was thrown into prison... He wrote the church at Philippi, and of course, the, the praetorian guard every four hours, Josephus tells us, would be changed. And so he'd have two men on either side of him to whom he was changed, and every four hours it would change. And, and Paul saw it as a good thing. He said his imprisonment had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard. There was a chain reaction, literally. Now, you can throw the messenger in prison, but you cannot imprison the message. The gates of hell shall not overpower it. And many times, God does his biggest work when the church is persecuted, even, quote-unquote, locked up. And dads and moms, grandparents, it is essential that you be preparing your children for persecution. 
Because unless the living God intervenes and sends a revival to this nation, and it appears that he is not because of all that is happening in the world, Israel is back in the land. That's the super prophetic event that God said he would do at the end of time. And so while no man knows the day or the hour, we are in that time frame that the Lord spoke of. And in that time frame, lawlessness will increase, men's hearts will grow cold, and there'll be increased persecution. Listen to these words, what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, technically, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. Peter tells us that in Acts 2. But as you read 2 Timothy, he speaks of the last days as going from bad to worse. I believe we are now in the last of the last days, especially since the prophet said at the end of time, God would gather the Jews. Even a hundred years ago, that was laughed at. And that's why, while today Israel has two key threats, they have militant Islam, uh, the Muslims, who threaten them with annihilation, but then we have the threat today of replacement theology that basically dismisses the role that God has for the people of Israel. You know, and as the centuries went by, people reasoned, well, I guess maybe we misunderstood the Scripture, and 500 years went by, and 1,000 years went by, and 1,500 years went by, and Rome by then had taught from the time of Augustine that they were the new Israel. And so they were delegitimizing the people of Israel as God's tool that would bring back the Messiah. And yet here we have seen the Jews grow from 20,000 people in Israel. And the prophet asks, can a nation, can a people become a nation in one day? And apparently, and God documented it, the answer is yes. And now there are approximately 8 million Jews of the 12 and a half, 13 million Jews that are in the world. Not by accident. God said He would gather them from the four corners of the world. And there's two gatherings. There's the initial gathering for that time during the tribulation period, things that need to be in place. And then there's the final gathering at the end of the tribulation where He will send His angels and bring the remainder back there to the valley of decision. So when we see these super signs unfolding, we know we are in the last of the last days. Now, it's foolish for you to try to uh, figure out or guess the hour because we don't know the hour, so don't waste your time trying to figure out the hour because God doesn't tell us the hour of the day, but He said this day should not overtake you because you're not in darkness. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's like a commentary in our day. Listen to what 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, now that is a term that is reserved unlike last days for the time frame at the end of the age before the Messiah lands on the Mount of Olives. The Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's articular, meaning the body of truth we call the Bible, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's what we have going on today, the teaching of demons. To say that a man can become a woman, that a woman can become a man, that a man can, quote unquote, become pregnant, that homosexuality is fine, 
that getting drunk is just something that you should enjoy, that we ought to legalize pot, though all the sheriffs in all the counties across the nation formally opposed it because they saw it as a gateway drug to call good evil and evil good. These are doctrines of demons. These are the days in which we are living. There is a tidal wave of sin that is coming upon our world in these last days. And because men hate the light and they love the darkness, it means more and more opposition. You should share these verses with your children. You should get them to memorize some of these verses. Jot down John 15, 18 through 20. John 15, 18 through 20. Listen to what Jesus said of the world's hatred. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He pulls no punches. He tells his disciples that our relationship to the world can be serious and, yes, even dangerous. Now, when he says, if the world hates you, he is not implying that there's doubt in this matter. It's what linguists call a first-class conditional statement. Just like in English, from time to time, we use a rhetorical question for emphasis. They use this particular grammatical structure to underscore the reality of what is going to happen. So he doesn't want us to be surprised when opposition comes. John will write in his first epistle in John 3:13, "Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you." And of course, Jesus told us earlier in God, John's gospel the ultimate reason the world would hate us. You say, "Well, why do they hate us?" Well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 7. "The world hates me because I testify it of it that its deeds are evil." The world has never loved the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he is the light of the world. And when you turn on the light, it reveals the sin. And if we are the light of the world as believers, not to be put under a basket, but to be put up high on a peck measure so that everyone can benefit from the light, know that they will hate you as well. Listen to what Jesus went on to say in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, applying that we are not, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, you are not a recipient of the world's love. The world loves its own. Those who follow the Lord Jesus, who lives like he lives, who speaks like he speaks, who upholds what he upholds, will be hated by the world. Now, we're not to hate the world. Hey, listen, it wasn't that long ago many of us were a part of the world system. But God in his mercy rescued us, and so we are to have compassion on the world. But the world by nature, Jesus is underscoring, is a society of rebels, and they will rebel against the allegiance to the king to whom they should submit. But he continues, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because I chose you out of the world, this is why they hate us. It's not that we're out of step, we're out of place. Remember, here is, is as plain as he could say it. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So if Jesus could not escape persecution, what makes us think that we can escape persecution? He is the head of the body. We are members of him. That's why when Saul had been persecuting the church and he met the Lord, the risen Lord in the Damascus road, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
He had never physically laid a hand on Jesus, but to persecute his church is to persecute the Lord himself. But listen, it's not all bad news. Look again at the end of verse 20. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's the positive aspect that we do not want to overlook. Some people kept Jesus' words, and so some will keep your word as well. They will respond. But listen, if I preach in such a way that everyone likes me, I know I'm doing something wrong. Listen to what Jesus said in the, on a parallel occasion where he didn't give the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. It was a different sermon. But he made this statement in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. The false prophets... Well, everyone liked them, and if everyone likes you, there's something wrong. So we need to be prepared for persecution. It might be verbal. It might be that you're left out. The phone doesn't ring, and they don't include you in the activities that they used to include you in. It might literally be physical. As God's people, we should be praying for the church in Afghanistan. The inner story that is coming out is believers are being beheaded. There's our government keeping its promises. Be prepared for persecution. Number two, if you are to be courageous, you must be empowered for proclamation. You must be empowered for proclamation. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. All the heavyweights, the rulers and the elders, they're a part of an organization known as the council. Now, you can either translate the word or you can transliterate the word. The word is suneron, and it means a council or a sitting together in Greek. And so some of your Bibles say council, some of it... Some of your Bibles just transliterate the word from Greek into English, and they call it the Sanhedrin. It's the same group of people. Seventy men, their origins go back to Numbers 11. At least that's what they claimed in Jesus' day. And so the chief priests were there. The high priest was there. The temple guard, they were all members of it. These were wealthy, aristocratic people. Seventy men that formed, in essence, the Supreme Court of Israel. They adjudicated on all the major religious issues. And of course, um, this, as Mark chapter 14 indicates, was the same group of men that Jesus stood up before on the night when he was betrayed. And so notice, Luke sets the stage for the drama. Circle the word and, it's found six times. There are different words in the Greek New Testament that are translated and into English. And when you want to string each and individual event or person together, you use the same word. So Luke is underscoring, which the first century reader immediately picked up. You won't believe who is here when Peter and John are brought in before the council and interrogated. And he wants to underscore each and every member that was present. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, and if that were not enough, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly 
descent. Now, let me say that when you read your New Testament, sometimes it's a little confusing because in some places you'll read that Annas is the high priest, in other places Caiaphas is the high priest. Well, there were actually two high priests. Now, in God's economy, the job of being a high priest was a lifetime role. And a high priest was not replaced until you died. But the predecessor to Pontius Pilate was a man by the name of Valerius Gratus. And Valerius Gratus thought that Annas, the high priest, was getting too powerful. So he wanted to replace him. And so he replaced them with a person he thought the people would accept, namely Annas' son-in-law. His name was Caiaphas. Most of you know of the, him. And so in one sense, some people only fall honest because they recognize, well, he's the true legitimate high priest, but it's Caiaphas who's the one who has the power and the authority and the dialogue with the Roman government. And so in addition, there are people of high priestly descent, John and Alexander, who presumably could trace their family roots back to the high priests of Israel. In other words, his point is, these are the big shots. Talk about intimidation. Peter and John, they're, they're out of their league. These are wealthy, powerful men dressed in their fine robes, articulate in their speech, and here are these two hillbillies from Galilee. Verse 7, when they had placed them in the center, Peter and John, and as we'll see in a moment, the paralyzed man who had been healed, the three of them, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, again, this is the same group that just two months before said, Jesus, you are guilty of blasphemy. Are you the son of man? Yes, he said. Caiaphas tore his robes. We don't have any further need of testimony. He has committed blasphemy. But Rome could care less about some religious charge. So they bring the Lord Jesus before Pilate, and they accuse him of a political charge. He claims to be a king, and nobody competes with Caesar. And so they're going after Peter and John. They're in the middle of the group with this man who had been healed. There's a certain comfort in numbers and formalism. They think they're in control. And they ask, by what power or by what name? That's a parallelism in the original. To ask one is to ask the other because the power is always linked to a name. And so by what power or by what name have you done this miracle? You see, they can't deny the miracle. It's true. Everybody knew it. Look at Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are in trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, and that blows their authority away. By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Now think about this. They're persecuted, but they're bold. They're powerful. And in the midst of persecution, sometimes that's when God's power shows itself the greatest. But I want you to see the source of this power. How is it they could be so bold in the midst of all this opposition? 
again in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, and you should get one if you don't have one, and if you're new, if you come to a meet the pastor, like tonight at 5.30, you will be given one, you'll be gifted one from an anonymous source in our church. But marginal notes are helpful because sometimes when there's something going on in the Greek text, so play on words or something, they'll note maybe the literal rendering. Sometimes the literal rendering from the original language into the receptor language doesn't translate real smoothly, but they put it out there because it's important. So look in the margin. It says more literally, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that? <clears throat> having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me make some important distinctions here as it relates to your and my relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. One important aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some of our Pentecostal brethren will say, well, first you get saved, and then after you're saved, you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, typically, they would argue, accompanied with speaking in tongues. But they put this experience as something that happens after salvation. And they do this based on a historical book like Acts to argue this. Now, Acts is a historical book. It's not that you cannot learn doctrine from the book of Acts. You certainly can. But the doctrine needs to be weighed in light of the epistles because there are some things that were changing, moving from the old covenant into the new covenant. So if you remember there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the 500 who were, uh, the, the 120 who were present, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he says, don't go out, don't preach the gospel. I just want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And 10 days later, on Sukkot or Pentecost, the Lord Jesus sends the Spirit of God just as He promised. And there was a supernatural manifestation where they spoke in tongues. Nothing like the nonsense we see today. Real languages, real dialects. What we see today is no different from what Hindus do across India. And so people would say, now wait a minute. Those folks, those 120, were they not saved? Yes. What if they had a heart attack there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended? Would they go to heaven? Of course they would. They were saved people. But wait a minute, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. Of course not. Because Jesus said the Spirit would not be given until He would go to heaven, and then He would send the Spirit. But understand, after Pentecost, with a couple of unique exceptions because of what was unfolding, from the moment someone believes, they are baptized by the Spirit. So in Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, Paul will write, in him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, what's the message of truth? The gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear the message because you can't believe until you hear. Once you hear, you believe. And then what happens? You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, like earnest money, like a down payment, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, that is of things to come, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Second, Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 tells us the same truth. 
that the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit as a pledge. He is God's seal that he that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is when your salvation is completed. He is sealed in you, Ephesians 4.30 will say, for the day of redemption. He goes in there. He's locked in there forever. That's why Jesus says in John 14 and verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. Do you know how long forever is? Forever. These people who say, well, you can get saved and then unsaved, that's just stupid. These people who say you can lose your salvation, that's just sheer ignorance and it is mishandling the Word of God. The Spirit of God is in you forever. You are sailed for the day of redemption. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, because by this time in the history of the church, the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong into him. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he will say, for by one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. And if you are saved, if you've been born again, you've been marked by the Spirit of God for heaven. And if you've not been born again, you are still marked for condemnation and for hell. Now, beyond the baptism of the Spirit, there's what we might call the filling of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an accomplished fact. It's assumed for every true child of God by the time the epistles are written post-Pentecost. Whereas the filling of the Spirit of God is conditional. It's based on your receptivity. It's based on your humility. And if sin fills your life, then the Spirit of God cannot fill your life. There's a command in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a loss of control. But be filled, plerao, with the Spirit. When a man's drunk with wine, the wine is in control. When he's filled with wine, his walk and his talk is influenced. When you're filled with the Spirit, so will your walk and talk be influenced. And so a Christian who has no unconfessed sin, a believer who's totally yielded to the living God, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to give, I'm totally yours. And you go in dependence upon the Spirit of God like a man needs oxygen to survive. You need the Spirit of God to live a holy life. Then you'll be filled with the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit progressively will manifest itself. And so Jesus in John 15 speaks of no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. With every year that goes by, you have more of those nine qualities working in your life. So there's the baptism of the Spirit, there's the filling of the Spirit, and then there is what this passage really highlights, what we often call as theologues as the anointing of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit. This is what's in view here in Acts 48, where it says, Peter, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up to speak. Now, this is not the word plerao, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. It's a different word for filling, and it's an important distinction. And to make that distinction, people will often call this, and rightly so, the anointing of the Spirit. Question, was Peter filled when he was arrested? Of course he was. He just did by the power of the resurrected Lord and in his authority. He did a miracle, and then he preached the gospel from that miracle. Of course he was filled with the Spirit. But as he stood up, 
the text underscores that there is this having just been filled with the Spirit. And so what verse 8 is underscoring is that sometimes you are brought into a particular situation. Maybe you weren't even planning to be in that situation where you need a special touch from Almighty God. Maybe it's a song that you need to sing. Maybe it's a specific task. Maybe you're called to to preach God's Word, to witness, to administer, and and you just need a special touch from God. And and you might say, Lord, I know that you've baptized me with the Spirit. I know I'm dwelt with you for the day of redemption, and He'll never leave me. I know as best I can understand that I'm filled with you. My, My heart is clean horizontally and vertically. But God, I need you to help me right now. You know, you're in a situation. All of a sudden, you have a chance to speak for Christ. Someone at work is talking about the beauty of transgenderism. And God says, what are you going to say? Are you going to stand for me or are you going to stand with them? Or the conversation changes to spiritual things and God brings an open door. And we'll talk about that next week. You don't want to miss next week's message. It's very important to becoming a consistent messenger for Christ. And God opens the door and you say, Lord, I wasn't prepared for this. Please help me. And the Spirit of God, just in a fresh way, for that moment, comes upon you. That's what's happening here. There's a special empowerment by the Spirit of God. And so here's Peter and John and this healed man in the center of this large group. Verse 11. By the way, I, um, I mean, don't go to verse 11. What I'm thinking of is Mark uh, 13, 11. I can't help but think that when he is called upon right now to preach, that what comes to his mind is what Jesus had said a couple months earlier. He said, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are going to be effective And sharing the gospel, when God opens those doors, your heart should be saying, Lord, I need your help right now. Because it is not my wisdom or my skill that brings people into the kingdom of God. It is the Spirit of God. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, 2,000 more men are saved, up to 5,000. Again, including women and children, probably 25,000. Now, who convinced these people? Do you think Peter was so skilled that he brought this great sermon not on your life? When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I learned a long time ago that I can never argue a person into the kingdom of God. And if you get into some situation where there's an argument, just stop. You may win the argument, but you'll probably lose the person. Vance Havner used to say, God's called us to be his witnesses, not his lawyers. We are to represent him. And when there's a disdain for the things of God, just pull back. You don't want to bruise the fruit. It's not ready yet. I mean, do you remember what happened on the night, the first time Jesus appeared there in the upper room? All the doors are locked. He just, he just comes right through the walls. Someday I'll be able to do that. Someday you'll be able to do that because you'll get a body just like Christ, Philippians tells us. He walks in, all the doors are locked, and there he is. Who's missing? Thomas. Thomas comes back later, and they said, we, we saw the Lord. He doesn't believe it. You know what he said, unless I can put my hands in his side and 
touch his, the nail scars of his feet and say, I won't believe it. Now, here's all these apostles and all these other godly people who are present, men and women alike, and they can't convince him. But then Jesus, a week later, comes in, and what does he do? He falls on his face, and he says, my Lord and my God. Look, if Thomas's friends could not convince him, neither can you. Only the Spirit of God in you when Christ is present in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We could argue this morning, when you are born again, you are indwelt by God the Father, you are indwelt by God the Son, you are indwelt by God the Spirit. But of course, the accent is placed on our dependence on the Spirit of God to make it real. This is the living water. If any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. These things he spoke concerning the Spirit was not yet given because the Lord Jesus had not yet been glorified. That's what you need. That's what I need, living water to convince people. So if you're to be courageous for Christ, you must be prepared for persecution. You must be empowered for proclamation. Here's your third prayer request for the week. You must be convinced of one salvation, convinced of one salvation. Let's keep reading. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Peter is simply saying, Jesus healed the man. The miracle was done by his power, the one whom you slew on a cross. So now in verse 11, Peter quotes Psalm 118. Again, you will notice the change in typeset if you have the NASP. And he says, he is the stone, Jesus, he is the stone, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Jesus is no ordinary stone. Peter says he's the chief cornerstone. And a large building in Christ's day could not be put together without it. It was the stone that set all the angles. It gave the building the symmetry and the strength that it needed. And unlike a cornerstone in our day that's just put there as a memorial maybe to say the year the building was built, no, this massive stone was the stone upon which all the other stones were built upon and locked in. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundational stone. And you cannot build your life apart from building it on the strength and symmetry and significance that he alone is able to give you in this life. Jesus said, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And if you're not building your life on Christ, you wonder why it's such a mess. It's real simple. You're on the wrong foundation. Some of us have marriages and families that are falling apart. You're listening somewhere in the country, somewhere in the world. Maybe you came into this church today, and life is just a mess. That's actually the, the entry level for so many visitors. Why'd you come to church here? Oh, my marriage, it's on the brink of a divorce. Build your life on the cornerstone. There are many unhappy people who are trying to cover up unhappiness. They, they think they can find happiness through the neck of a bottle or through some illicit relationship, or they're seeking constantly the God of materialism. And the devil has deceived them. There's no foundation that can be laid other than the one which is laid, Paul says, which is Christ Jesus. 
And listen, if you preach the cornerstone, some people are going to stumble over it. Let's read further. He proclaims in verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to Matthew's gospel, would you? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And go to Matthew chapter 21 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Matthew, each gospel is written with a different audience in view. And Matthew is the Jewish gospel to demonstrate and prove that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would have to fulfill. Matthew chapter 21, look at verse 23. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, again, you will notice the change in typeset. If you go out into the margin of the NASB, it will tell you, oh, this is from Isaiah chapter 5. And you can go back and read Isaiah 5, and it will make this text pop. Because the vineyard in Isaiah 5, of course, is Israel, and every Jew knew it. Verse 34, let's keep reading. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Now, the slaves, if you know the parable, it represents the Old Testament prophets. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And of course, that refers to the Lord Jesus, God the son. Therefore, he asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? The religious man responded, verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay the proceeds at the proper season. He says, you've got it. You've answered correctly. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And so now Jesus says here in verse 44, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. My friend, the Lord Jesus will either be a stepping stone for you into heaven or will be a stumbling, he'll be a stumbling stone for you into hell. You must choose. And if you stumble over him, the text says you, he will scatter you like dust. It's imagery that describes the eternal retribution and the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I know that many people think of Christianity as just another religion in the pantheon of religions, and Jesus just another religious teacher. And they will sometimes argue, well, Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. If he were the Messiah, more of the 8 billion people on the planet would be following him. Listen, if everyone followed Jesus of Nazareth, I would be absolutely convinced he was not the Messiah. Because the prophets described and Jesus affirmed here out of Psalm 118 that he would largely be rejected. Many people stumble over the cornerstone. They're offended by what the scripture says of itself. And so here's Peter 
Notice what he says in Acts 4 and verse 12, back to Acts chapter 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when you quote that, people will accuse you of being narrow-minded and unloving. When you tell them that people can only be saved through the Lord Jesus, they'll get mad at you. Listen, it was Jesus who said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For then he said, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. And by the way, he said that in the context of people who identified with Christianity. He said, the truth is, is that many are on the broad road that are headed to destruction. You have these mainline denominations that say it's a woman's right to kill the baby in the womb. We have two Presbyterian churches in town that do gay marriages. We have two Baptist churches that deny the infallibility of Scripture. We've got many who are on the broad road. Oh, Jesus doesn't go for that kind of a testimony. He goes for the most dramatic kind of testimony you can think of. So when he closes it off, he says, many will come in my name. They'll, they'll preach sermons in my name. They'll do miracles in my name. They'll cast out demons in my name. By the way, all three of those things the Bible affirms an unbeliever can do. But then he'll say to them, I never knew you. Lost forever. When you say Jesus is the only way, people get mad. But they are saying, in essence, I reject what the Bible says. I reject what the Lord Jesus says. I reject what the apostles say. They're rejecting God's chief cornerstone, the rock of offense. If I say Jesus is the only way, they say you're bigoted, brogy. Listen, if Jesus is not the only way, then he's no way at all. Because Jesus doesn't say I'm a good way. He doesn't say I'm the best way. He says I am the only way to the Father. And if he's not the only way to the Father, then he's no way to the Father. Because he said he is the way, the only way to heaven. And if he's not the only way, he's either deceived or a deceiver. That would make him a sinner. And he could save absolutely no one. Jesus is not one God among many. Barner Research came out and they said now nearly two out of three American adults contend that the choice of one's religious faith over another is irrelevant because all religions basically teach the same thing. And so you'll have people say, well, you know, religious truth is just a matter of your own interpretation. They'll say, I think all the religions of the world are basically the same. They'll sometimes say, well, you know, there are aspects of Christianity that I like, the Sermon on the Mount, some of the things Jesus said about how we should treat one another, but there's a certain dogmatism and intolerance I don't like in the Christian faith. In 2019, the Parliament of World Religions came together. They brought together 6,000 delegates. Who were their chief participants? High school and college students. They meet again in two weeks, by the way. The theme of the last meeting with 6,000 was unite or perish. And they had all these different seminars, over 700 to help the attendees to, to recognize that one religion is as good of another. This is what the Spirit explicitly says in the latter days, that some will fall away from the faith, the body of truth, and they will listen to deceitful spirits, the doctrines of demons. What is the devil doing? He is preparing a generation of young people to give their allegiance to the Antichrist. 
And then the 700 workshops, the notes were put online. They described Jesus where he's admired, he's quoted, he's favorably compared to other religious teachers, but they describe him as one enlightened man who's to be respected, but not to be worshiped. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In two weeks, they meet that group. They're going to do it virtually this year because of COVID. They expect over 100,000 participants. The devil is at work. Salvation in no one else. You preach that, you'll be laughed at. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be made fun of. You say, well, pastor, does it really matter? Isn't one religion just as good as another? Why is Jesus the only way? Because he's the only one who can forgive your sin. And I'll say to people when they tell me that, I'll say, look, if you're right, if you're right, then it really doesn't matter what I believe. If all religions are basically equal, it doesn't really matter what I believe. But if I'm right, it matters. If you're right, doesn't matter. If I'm right, nothing else matters. This is the only book on the face of the earth that God inspired. It is absolute truth. And if you're not convinced of it, you better study it because it contains within itself the supernatural fingerprints of God Almighty. Finally, if you're to be a courageous witness, you need to be prepared for persecution, empowered for proclamation, convinced about one salvation, but you must be a witness of regeneration, a witness of regeneration. Now look at verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained, meaning they hadn't been to one of their approved rabbinical schools, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They had confidence. The King James renders it boldness. The NIV 84 says courage. The NCV says they were not afraid. Yet they hadn't been to one of the approved rabbinical schools. It was perplexing how these uneducated, untrained rabbis could speak with such authority. And then it hit them like a ton of bricks. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Jesus taught with authority. Do you remember what it said of him in John 7, 15, the Pharisees asked about Jesus and they asked the question, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Remember, they sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus and they come back empty-handed. Where is he? Never do we ever hear a man preach the way he preaches. And so they recognized that these men had been there with the Lord Jesus they had witnessed what happens to a person when they are born again and filled with the Spirit. And seeing, verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. It's kind of awkward. We've got these guys in the room. We've got this man who's been healed. No one can deny it. Get him out of the room. Let's get into a holy huddle here. They began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
On the one hand, they can't agree with Peter's sermon that Jesus is the Messiah because their hearts are proud, they're self-righteous, they think they're good enough, and good enough people don't need a Savior. On the other hand, neither could they punish them because the multitudes are following them. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But my friends, all the forces of hell could not intimidate these men. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. You might as well have said to the sun to stop shining and then to tell these men to stop preaching. We're going to tell what we've seen and heard, and that's a great testimony. That's what a witness is. You tell what you've seen and heard. This is not some religious sideshow. They're preaching the good news. Look at verse 21. When they had threatened them further... They let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. They didn't want to ride on their hands. And on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. These men are unmoved, but they're concerned about public opinion. Like a politician who puts his finger to the air. That's how they base their decisions. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. Wow. You know what the tragedy is of 21st century evangelical Christianity? Is that God's men and women are silent. We have stopped sharing the gospel. And what you discover through the book of Acts is that Evangelism is not just these big meetings. It's just the rank and file people throughout the week after they are scattered through the various places in which they live and work, they speak of the good news. And it's that kind of courage and boldness that Peter and John had that we need. Let me tell you what boldness is not. It's not human persuasion. Every once in a while, someone would say, Pastor Carl, you'd make a really good car salesman. If you ever need a job, you'd make a good car salesman. And they think, like, what I do as a pastor is based on human persuasion, not on your life. It's not some manipulative technique. You say it like this, and you ask this question, and you give this phrase. It's not like that at all. Anything I can talk you into, someone else can talk you out of. The Spirit of God must work in a human's heart. Neither is it arrogance, what some people call boldness, I call brass. Those people 30 years ago used to stand down on Bay Street and scream at people when they walked by, and you're a prostitute, look at your dress, and all this stuff. That was not boldness, that was an embarrassment. Neither is it presumption. People say, I show my faith. Look at at me handle these snakes. That's stupidity. That's not boldness. No, boldness is saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to use me. I want you to speak through me. And even if I am persecuted, even if I have made fun of, even if I am lied about, even if I am left out, 
I want to be your faithful servant. Look, do you want to be courageous? Be prepared for persecution. Be empowered. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Let God fully empower your life. Be convinced there's salvation in no one else. You say, what about the people who've never heard? I got a whole booklet on it in the bookstore about the unevangelized. They're lost too. The Bible teaches it. And you need to witness new life for generation. Let me ask. We're out of time. I went too long. Maybe I didn't. Let me ask a few questions as we close by application. Number one, do you bring joy to God's heart? It's not up there. You can bring up the final. You can turn off the slides. Do you bring joy to God's heart? What brings joy to God the Father's heart? What makes joy in heaven? What is it that gladdens the heart of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Jesus said it in Luke 15, 10, in the context of really three parables put into one, showing how each member of the Godhead, God the Spirit in the searching of the coin, God the Son in the searching of the lost sheep, God the Father and the prodigal son. And he says in the midst of that, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15, 10. Now, some think that that's what the angels do, that they rejoice. And I suppose they do, but that's not the primary focus of the verse. The Greek pronouns are very specific. It doesn't say there's joy among the angels, but rather there's joy in the presence of the angels. It is the Lord who rejoices like that father who is looking for the son to come home. And it gladdens the heart of God when we're involved in bringing people into the kingdom. Secondly, I would just ask, do you have joy in your heart? Do you have joy in your heart? In Psalm 126.6, it says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, some people have little joy because they have little obedience. Jesus said, when you obey me, your joy will be made full. You know what I find? I find people who are always griping about this issue or that issue. They're not involved in the battle. They're just filled with self. You get involved in the work of the kingdom. And you start asking God to use you to bring people into the kingdom. And we'll talk next week about how practically that unfolds. I'm telling you, your heart will overflow with joy. So are you burdened this morning for those who are lost? Do you interact with them? Do you try to make conversation with them? Do you try in any way, shape, or form, try to reach out to them? And let me say, if you're here today and you don't know that heaven is your home, I spoke with someone yesterday. They said, I'm 85% sure I'm going to heaven. I said, come tonight to meet the pastor. If you know much of the Bible as a general principle, if you're not 100% sure, you're not going. And if you're not certain, there's nothing more important than this. I mean, what is more important than knowing that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, and that if the trumpet of God were sounded today, that you would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? There's nothing more important, and there's nothing more important that you can share. Now, Father, we don't want to be a church that is not involved in bringing the lost into the kingdom.
So we need your help. We want to be an obedient people. And Father, if in our hearts we've written it off for someone else to do and to not own the great commission of going and making converts or disciples of all people, then change our convictions beginning today. Help us with the Apostle Paul to pray for open doors of opportunity and when they come that we might make the gospel clear as we are filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his honor and glory. Amen.